Hello and welcome to this focus episode of How We're Wired. My name is Eva Higginbotham. I have a PhD in neuroscience and I'm the producer of this series for the Bertarelli Foundation. These focus episodes are a chance for us to dig into more fascinating stories of our brains, how they work and how scientists are studying them. In episode 9, we looked at the neuroscience of touch, how different types of nerve cells in our skin work together to generate what something feels like to us. And that works because our brains successfully blend together complex sensory information, like whether something is cold, rough and hard, or hot, smooth and soft. But for some people, that merging of sensory information goes quite a lot further which can create some unusual experiences. My name is Cece Hart. I live in San Francisco, California, and I have a form of synesthesia called mirror touch synesthesia. For example, if you showed me a cut on the palm of your left hand, I would feel that on my right hand. It's as if I'm looking in a mirror. So imagine that I walk out the door of my home and out on the sidewalk is a man walking with crutches and his right ankle is in a cast. I will immediately feel pain in my left ankle. I'll feel the heaviness of the cast and the texture of it on my skin. I might feel the coarseness. In the the case of a person walking with crutches, I might also feel the pressure under my armpits of the crutches. And so it can be any one of a number of textures. So even something positive, like a hug. If I walked out my door and saw a parent walking with their child and holding their child's hand, I'll feel that sensation in my own hand. If actually this happens to me because a couple of doors down from my home is a preschool. And so I see a lot of parents dropping their children off and that pat on the head or that kiss on the forehead. I feel those things on my own body, which is really lovely. It's the best part of having mirror touch. So what's happening in Cece's brain that makes her feel what other people are feeling? Mirror touch synesthesia describes an experience where people feel tactile sensations on their own body simply when observing touch happen to other people. That's Michael Bannessy. He's a professor at the University of Bristol and he's spent years trying to unpick the science of mirror touch. So synesthesia is um, that refers to the blending of the senses that are normally experienced separately. So for instance in synesthesia somebody might hear sounds and see colours, they might hear words and see taste but it's not all about hearing right so in something like letter to colour synesthesia they might see a letter that's normally let's say a black letter and they'll see a colour associated with that or in mirror touch synesthesia, uh, vision evokes touch. So for these people, seeing somebody being touched evokes a feeling of touch on their own body. And what's happening in the brain for someone when they're going through that experience and they're feeling that sort of touch yeah so with regards to what's happening in the brain in mirror touch synesthetes it's it's sometimes easier to take one step back and talk about what happens in all of us when we see touch to other people because effectively 
for the majority of us, if we see somebody else being touched, we tend to recruit similar parts of our brain as when we're touched ourselves. Uh, and in a particular brain region called the somatosensory cortex. So this is a region of the brain that is, in a way, it's just a few centimetres up from your ear. Uh, it's kind of where you would normally have your headphones sitting, actually. And um, the somatosensory cortex is, you can kind of think of it almost as the mailroom for touch in the brain, because every touch sensation that you feel on your body is likely to be sent there in some way. It's the primary region of the brain involved in processing touch. And you have a part of the somatosensory cortex that responds to touch to your face, a part that responds to touch to your feet and so on. And so if we see somebody being touched, we tend to recruit the similar part of our brain as when we experience that ourselves. So if we saw someone being touched on the face, we tend to recruit the face part of the somatosensory cortex. If we saw someone touched on our neck, we recruit the neck part of the somatosensory cortex. Mirror touch synesthetes recruit this same system when they see other people being touched. The important difference is that they recruit it to a much larger degree. They overactivate the system and it's thought that they overactivate it so much that this leads them to, I suppose, tip over so that they actually start to feel the sensations of other people. Um, there's a bit more to it than that, um, which also involves other brain networks because the brain obviously doesn't tend to act one region alone. But that somatosensory overactivation appears to play a key role in mirror touch synesthesia. What sort of research has been done to try and understand mirror touch as a phenomenon? The work on mirror touch synesthesia has been conducted at many levels. So at a behavioural level, people have developed experiments to try to verify, you know, evidence that it exists, that it can be verified. And there's been a, a range of behavioural tasks that have been put together, which involve people being touched while they're seeing other people being touched and um, then calculating reaction times and errors and accuracy rates to identify that these people really are feeling the sensations. There's been brain imaging data as well. So people have put mirror touch synesthetes in a brain scanner and compared what happens in their brain when they see somebody being touched versus what happens in someone that doesn't have mirror touch synesthesia. And there's, there's ongoing work to also look at how mirror touch synesthesia is connected to wider traits and experiences. So what I mean by that is, you know, when we talk about mirror touch, we often talk about the tactile components. They see touch, they feel touch. But what about situations where they're not seeing touch or they're not seeing somebody in pain? What happens then? Let's just say they see somebody making an action, but it doesn't involve touch. Or let's say they just see somebody standing opposite them or they have a friendly exchange with someone. Does this difference that they show extend to other components of social interaction. Quite a lot of data that's now coming in is suggesting that people with mirror touch synesthesia don't just mirror the tactile experiences of others, but they differ in how they represent themselves and how they represent other people. They, they tend to be a bit more likely to take on representations of others onto themselves. Other ways are that they have a tendency to find it harder to not imitate other people. So we all tend to imitate other people. We have a kind of tendency towards that. But mirror touch synesthetes, if you ask them to try to inhibit that, they struggle with that more than someone that doesn't have mirror touch synesthesia, which again is a sign of a general tendency to map onto others' behaviours a bit more. And they differ in wider social skills, like things like empathy and emotion recognition. And for Cece, that difficulty separating her sense of self from others is something she's very familiar with. It can be a little bit disorienting sometimes. And I often find that I have to sort of reorient myself into my own body, sort of recognize, okay, I'm feeling these sensations. 
but I'm also feeling myself walk down the street, feeling my sense of myself and my own body. It's very hard, very challenging sometimes, especially as someone who lives in an urban environment, to feel the bodies of other people all around me. And so I'm always trying to balance those two concepts, my own sense of where I am in three-dimensional space with the feeling of other people's experiences. And you know, the point that I that I need to make right now that feels very important to me is that I don't have any choice in this matter. This is just how my brain is wired. Michael told me that it's estimated that around 1.5 to 2.5% of the population experience mirror touch synesthesia. But despite that, research on it is still pretty new. Officially speaking, the first single case study of developmental mirror touch synesthesia that I know about um, was published in 2005, so so incredibly recently. Um, from what I know of the, the story behind that, that, that very much came out of, you know, somebody giving a giving a talk about synesthesia and somebody came up at the end of the talk and said, well, I don't experience tastes when I hear words. I don't see colours when I, you know, <laughs> hear music. But I do have this thing where if I see somebody being touched, I kind of feel it. Is that is that unusual? Um, and it was that kind of scenario because someone had already always had it. And actually, it wasn't until that then got spoke about separately in another group meeting that someone else said, oh, no, I have that moment of hearing about synesthesia later in life and thinking, wait a minute, maybe that's what I have, is something a lot of synesthetes have experienced, including Cece, who has used her mirror touch in her work as a massage therapist for many years. I was working with a client and she said, she said, well, wait a minute, before I get on the table, I should tell you something. She said, do you know what synesthesia is? And I said, no. And she said, well, basically, synesthesia, you can have any one of your senses connected or tied to any of your other senses. She said, for me, when people touch me, I see colors in front of my face. And so when you're working on my shoulder, if I gasp, it's not because you're hurting me. It's because sometimes the colors are just so bright. And she said, also... If I say magenta, it's not because I think it's your name. And so we laughed a little bit. She got on the table. I started working with her. And I can't really remember very much from her session because all I could think of is this is the word. This is the word. This is the thing. This is the thing. I think this is the thing. And I, she was my last client of the day. I went home. And I was on my computer for the next six or seven hours. And that's when I learned the word mirror touch. And uh, let's just say there were a lot of tears because I felt like I had finally, finally had a word that described my experience. Many synesthetes of different types will describe finding out that there's a word for their experiences as a great relief. Although for some, the word itself, synesthesia, is not too pleasant. Well, I tell you what, synesthesia ugh, um, tastes like mucus. Oh no! Yeah, so and you must have to just, hear that word. I know. <laughs> <laughs> That's James Wanerton, head of the UK Synesthesia Association, 
and synesthete. Uh, well, I've got um, th- th- a sound to taste type. And what that essentially means is every sound I hear, uh, and that includes word sounds in particular, but uh, essentially it's every single sound produces a sense of sense of taste as well, flavour, there's texture, there's temperature in there, and there's a mouthfeel. So it's a full experience. So have you, how long have you been living with that experience? Well, I can't remember anything without having um, a taste attached to the experience itself. This is a synesthetic taste. I first remember and documented uh, having these tastes connected to sounds when I was uh, aged around about four, four and a half. It was just preschool. I used to go to preschool with my mum. Um, she's taking me there on the tube, and the, the sensory input I got from the, all the tastes I got from from the sound of the tube and all the noise and everything going on down there—it was absolutely amazing. I was learning to read and write at the time, and um, part of the exercise for me was to write down the names of the stations as we went through. And I actually documented alongside those, and this is going back to the same when I was five years old—that's uh, over fifty years ago. When I was uh, actually writing these down, I, I put down flavours alongside it as well. And I've still got some of these documents. That was when I first realised I had it I, and I took it on myself to write it down just as a part of an exercise. To me as a person or as a child, it, wasn't, it didn't feel peculiar. It just felt normal and natural. It was just exactly the same as smelling something or, um, or tasting food or, you know, hearing stuff. James's family doctor unfortunately just diagnosed him as having an overactive imagination as a child, which is something many synesthetes experience growing up, even as it continues to shape their lives in many ways. When I look back, and uh, I remember all my old friends from when I was aged from five upwards, they've all got nice tasting names, because um, some names aren't nice at all, believe you me. You know, there's, no, uh, there's no set formula to this. I've always surrounded myself with blue, so I actually love the taste of the sound of the word blue. Um, and it's very nice and comforting. So it sort of affected me that way. It's affected all my relationships. Um, when I was dating girls, for example, the taste of their name and their voice, in some respects, would make, uh, make made all the difference. It was part of the attraction. You know, they, it was just as important to me as having a bubbly personality or, or being great fun to be with. I've had to work with people whose names I've found absolutely revolting. With me, it's, um, when I hear something or I hear a sound that doesn't agree with me, synesthetically, it's horrible, that the taste and texture is horrible, creates a feeling of disgust, and that's the, the best way I can think of it. It's just disgust. You can probably imagine being in a situation where you've been totally disgusted, but that's what it's like. And if you've got no control over that, and I haven't, because this thing is automatic, it's totally involuntary. I mean, I can't control it, I can't turn it off, I can't turn it down. It can be difficult to live with sometimes. There's one in particular, and don't ask me why, it's just disgusting, is the word, is the word cook. Uh, C-double-O-K. Nice innocent word. <laughs> it's horrible. But to me, it's, um, it, I get this, uh, this sort of pulse of, taste and it's like the the horrible crusty bits you get around um, a pan that you've had fried meat in of some description it's absolutely disgusting and it's half burnt but that's you know a perfectly innocuous word um 
anything that's got, I tend to find that anything that's got uh, the flavour of yoghurt in it, I, I like. Like is a word I like using because like tastes of thick, creamy yoghurt. Oh, that's so nice. <laughs> mm. Yeah, so, but, you know, the, the company, that taste of yoghurt, beautiful. Wow. Um, but it's slightly thicker than, than like. But, you know, link company yogurt and like there's no sort of rhyme or reason there yeah so there's lots and lots of those one of the ways james has learned to cope with strong or unpleasant tastes has been to constantly eat strongly flavored sweets to overpower them he's also been studied a lot both in consistency tests where researchers asked him to write down the specific tastes and textures of 3,000 different words and then would randomly call him up and test him on them for years afterwards, and in brain scanners like MRIs. So what's happening in the brain of people like James when they hear a sound? So what's happening here is that they would be activating the, the parts of the brain involved in hearing speech and understanding language. That's Jamie Ward. He's a professor of cognitive neuroscience at the University of Sussex and a world expert on synesthesia. And that activity will then flow on to other regions of the brain that, that are involved in taste that would not normally be activated uh, in other people. So it is this kind of joining of different brain regions um, that creates the, the, I suppose, the unified synesthetic experience at the moment of words triggering taste. Uh, that you've got multiple brain regions being simultaneously activated and maybe in other people it's just one part of that network that's being activated, which is why they don't have that kind of experience. Sound taste synesthesia is one of the rarer types, but others are more common. I mean, one of the most common types is something that we call sequence space synesthesia, which is imagining numbers... Uh, or the calendar, so days and months kind of arranged out in space. And this might be outside of your body, like a kind of a landscape or a hula hoop, uh, or it might be kind of inside your mind's eye. So uh, almost like on a black inner screen, they would see where January and February is, where their birthday is, where their next dentist appointment is. Uh, and each of these has its own particular uh, spatial position. So this is maybe, you know, 5%. Uh, coloured letters and numbers, maybe about 1% uh, of this. It does mean that everybody knows somebody with senescence, even though you don't know who it is. Uh, all you need to do is ask around what colour is Monday or, um, you know, where is your uh, your December? You know, what position is it in? And people think, oh, yeah. but somebody will give it. Say, I know what position December is in, uh, you know. And, and, and some other things like, um, I don't know, uh, taste triggering colors is a fraction of a percent it's so rare that we don't we can't put a number on it mm. but but like when we ask 500 people we we don't find anybody or we find one you know so so it's that kind of um rare yeah i'm thinking when you describe the calendar months out in space for example or you see january on the left and december on the right whatever it is it reminds me a little bit of sort of tricks that we're taught to try and remember things you know like a memory palace imagine this in space and moving through the space do people do people with that with that sort of synesthesia do they tend to have like better memories for dates or for whatever their thing is 
Yes, they certainly report that they feel that they, um, you know, that they use these things. And there's a whole other idea as to whether or not that's why these things exist in the first place. And, and certainly in general, synesthetes have better memory. Uh, and to some extent, they probably can use their synesthesia as a tool. So a good example here would be, yeah, you mentioned dates, but also uh, music that they might see that, that is almost like as a private score uh, mm. of the music that they can see it kind of transcribed in their head uh, as this and they, they know um, that they, they gives them an extra insight but in general synesthesia is linked with certain cognitive abilities some of which are, are tied to the particular experiences they've got and some are almost like this is what it is to be a synesthete that you think differently beyond your synesthesia you've got different ways of doing things in general and synesthetes are just generally visual thinkers they think in it with their senses in, in ways that other people don't or don't do to that extent. So with taking that into account, if you look into the brain of a synesthete using a brain scanner, for example, can you visually represent what's going on for them when they're experiencing, you know, sound as colour? Can you see it? Uh, yes. Yeah, so there are a couple of ways of kind of answering uh, this question. One is that when you play sounds or you present them with um, letters and numbers which uh, look black and that you have colours, you can show that in visual parts of the brain, particularly those visual parts of the brain that respond to colours, that they are having more activity. So their brains are uh, responding differently uh, to that. So we, this is what we call functional imaging. So we give people something like a task or a sound or a letter. We see um, changes in the brain kind of, you know, occurring on a second scale. It's quite variable, actually. And, and some people who we sure have synesthesia, we, we find it hard to see uh, where the differences are. So there are some people who are more extreme. Some synesthetes project their colours onto the letters and numbers when they're reading. And these people tend to have more extreme brains when we measure it this way. There's a whole other set of things we can do with synesthetes' brains, and we, it doesn't involve presenting them with sounds or other things. And we just ask, do their brains look different? Do they have differences in their grey matter, their white matter? And these aren't things that change, uh, you know, from second to second. These are like semi-permanent kind of structural changes in the brain. And that's a project that we've been doing over the last uh, few years that we've kind of called the 100 Brains, where we've collected together 100 synesthetic brains. We're looking what is a synesthetic brain like, not just how it responds to, to, um, to, to sounds and, and numbers, but what does it, like it look like in general? So you might expect, actually, that having a synesthetic brain, whether it's sound and colour or smell and sight, um, might actually, in general, look potentially different from a non-synesthetic brain. So sort of more generic changes that occur across the brain, not just in those specific senses that are affected. Well, that's a really good point because uh, synesthesia is so variable that you could imagine that actually somebody who takes words and somebody who has colour for music, that you'll put their brains together and find that they have nothing in common. That would be one, you know, reasonable uh, scientific hypothesis because the, the senses that are involved here are different. Uh, and so on. But yeah, that what we do believe is actually that there is some commonality, both at the level of the way that the brains are structured, but actually taking it back a step in terms of the genes that cause the brains to be structured in certain ways that would link together somebody who tastes words and somebody who has uh, visualised music, even though superficially the experiences are quite different. Yeah, that, that's entirely right. Uh, and what we would, what the kind of pattern is, 
is that actually their their grey matter, so this is the outer part of the brain, the cortex, the, the bit that kind of does the thinking, if you will, tends to be thicker in people with, with synesthesia uh, in some regions, but actually in a whole lot of regions. Uh, and this might have a developmental story that normally actually as you um, age, and I'm not talking about growing old, just going from childhood to adulthood, your brain does mature and, and parts of the brain do thin out, that they change. So, so synesthetes might not have gone through the same kind of maturation process in the first few decades of life uh, here. It's not a necessarily a problem, as I say, for, for these people. It, it's just a different way of being. Uh, but but it is genuine. It, it is there as a biological difference in the brain and uh, in the genes as well. That's something we talked a little bit about on our brain development episode, which is that, you know, we think often as adults, we think about making new connections and learning new things. But a big part of developing a brain actually is pruning back the stuff that you realise you don't need because the brain wants to be efficient, right? Yes, that's right. So one idea um, from Daphne Mara is that basically everybody is born with synesthesia and, uh, you know, what we're effectively doing, what 99 or 95% of the population are doing is losing it, uh, mm -hmm. in effect. It, it, I, I think it's kind of quite hard to prove that. But, but there is some kind of biological uh, plausibility around what she's suggesting uh, in, in the idea that, that synesthetes are, um, they're going through a different kind of trajectory that's maybe holding on to certain things. Actually, we, we find when we uh, look at children with synesthesia that they're, um, they're particularly for coloured letters and numbers, it, we only really see it happening when they go to school. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so either they didn't have synesthesia between uh, the age of zero and five, or they did and it was some other form or whatever. But certainly it's not the case that your synesthesia is fixed from the day you're born, which this idea does. It might be that your brain is different from the day you're born if you're a synesthete, for example. That is one possibility. But uh, still, when you kind of, as you, I suppose, gain expertise in literacy or maybe even expertise in music, then these kind of pathways solidify in the brain in, mm. in ways that they do not with other people. Yes. And so we know you suggested that there might be a genetic component here. Do we know a, do we know what causes some people to be synesthetes and some people not to be? We don't really know what causes uh, some people to do it and some people not in the sense that um, when you look at different kind of families or different genetic profiles, essentially, um, you know, it's the, the classic kind of modern science thing of things don't replicate, uh, at which point people attempt to, to throw the whole data in the bin, but, th but that's not the appropriate thing to do. All it might be is that there are multiple genes that interact. So this family has these sets of genes, these family have those sets of genes, and it looks like they're not replicating, but actually the, both of these genes are probably doing similar things in the brain. They might be talking to each other, so it doesn't matter which one you, you kind of change. Uh, or whatever. So almost certainly synesthesia is a what we'd call polygenic. There are multiple genes that kind of, what I would think of as a disposition. So it's not mm. a gene that makes you a synesthete. It's a gene that makes you more likely to be a synesthete. Uh, and it makes you more likely to think in different ways and have other kinds of characteristics that, that go with uh, synesthesia. And that's how I would uh, perhaps think about this. And maybe the more of these genes that you have, the more likely you are to get synesthesia. Maybe the more likely you are to have multiple kinds of synesthesia. You get these kind of uber synesthetes who literally have everything. And actually, Cece is one of those uber synesthetes. She actually has many different forms of synesthesia. 
including words to colours. But I wondered, what might the evolutionary purpose of all this be? Or is it just a random fluke of brain development? Letters are... Uh, I always assumed letters are kind of a new, newish <laughs> uh, phenomenon in, in, in humans. And that doesn't seem to particularly map in my brain to just sort of this is a way that some brains are, that they just evolved to see letters in a certain way. So I'm wondering for people who have uh, synesthesia associated with seeing letters or seeing numbers, do they have other changes in how they see things in general? Because that seems like a very learned thing. Yeah, this is a very interesting example. So there's a whole, uh, what I would call just so story about why synesthesia exists, for example. Uh, And I I think that this uh, is a very interesting example because basically it can't be that synesthesia has evolved for letters and numbers kind of having colours because this is too recent uh, an invention in human history. And maybe the other kinds of synesthesia, we could invent a a kind of a story as to why this has happened, but we can't for that one. And the way that I think about it, actually, is that... um, the, to a synesthesia, they can't imagine what life's w- like without it. But actually, in terms of kind of human evolution, it might just be something you get for free as a result of having other changes in the brain, so different styles of thinking and so on. Um, so we've already mentioned that synesthetes might have good attention to detail. They might have good memory in general. And maybe this is what synesthesia is all about. It's about these different styles of thinking, being able to visualise things, being able to... Uh, put stuff together in novel ways uh, and it's not all about uh, these other experiences so although these are what fascinates us it's why we're doing this interview today actually in the scheme of things in terms of human evolution it doesn't matter it, it's all the other wow. stuff that matters around different styles of thinking and synesthesia is just kind of a byproduct of a different style of thinking that actually can manifest itself in rather kind of what I would say ephemeral ways that come and go, you know, like uh, coloured letters and numbers, which, uh, you know, it, it's interesting, it's fun, but, but you know, you can't put, you can't kind of make up a story about caveman or, you know, or, or these sorts of things to what they were doing yeah. here, you know. And despite some of the difficulties and drawbacks, James told me that most synesthetes feel the benefits far outweigh the negatives. That music is one of the advantages uh, if it sounds nice and tastes nice. Piano music has always had an overlying taste and texture that I can only describe as very syrupy and pineapple cubes. You know, you could buy pineapples in, in cubes, tinned pineapple cubes as well, not fresh. <laughs> um, that, that, that's exactly what it does. So whenever I hear a piano, um, that's where I'm getting a little tinkling of that. And that's brilliant. And I think um, within music as well, well, well-structured music. I don't like live music, but I like well-produced music because you've got um, all these different layers because it's just like creating a meal, isn't it? You, you mix in a bit of drums here and whack that in there. It's, um, it all produces a, a lovely tasting meal at the end of it when they get it right. Can I ask you one word in particular just because we're a neuroscience podcast? which is what about the word brain? Tell you what it is, it's like um, overboiled, really badly overboiled leaves of, oh God, what's that vegetable you get? What's a vegetable that you, it's it's like green, do you know you get leaves? But it's like, it's like a, a, it's like a vegetable, it's an awful description, I'm sorry it wasn't. Like, um, 
like leaves on the outside of the vegetable, like a cabbage or yeah, that's, uh, that's, broccoli. That's, that's spot on, cabbage. That was the uh, cabbage. It's just like really, really badly overboiled cabbage. Um, that's a mush, wow. mushy mess. So it's not nice. <laughs> not. That's a bad one. Sorry, brains. On the other hand, podcast apparently tastes like wafer biscuits. So I'll take that as a win. Thanks so much to Cece Hart, Michael Bannessy, James Wanerton and Jamie Ward. That's it for this week's Focus episode. Join us in two weeks' time where we'll be exploring the neuroscience of parenthood. I'm Eva Higginbotham and this is How We're Wired. How We're Wired is a fresh air production for the Bertarelli Foundation. It's produced by me, Eva Higginbotham. Follow now for free so you never miss an episode.